This is Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe. Now, here's Patrick McEnroe. All right, time for another edition of Holding Court, everyone. Patrick McEnroe here, and what better way to kick off 2021 than to have on one of the legends uh, in the world of tennis, but in, in, in a lot more than just that, because... Uh, uh, what he's been able to do throughout his incredible career. I, mean, I sometimes think that I've done a lot, you know, as a decent player, as a Davis Cup captain for 10 years and working into the administrative role that I did with the USTA and television. But then I read about my, my good friend Donald Dell and how he, all that he's done, which includes playing at a high level, Donald, uh, coaching the Davis Cup. You were undefeated twice and leading the U.S. to win two Davis Cups. Uh, being an incredibly successful attorney, uh, starting ProServe, which was one of the first real management uh, companies in all of sports, but particularly in tennis. And the list goes on and on. Of course, you worked in TV for many years as well. Uh, It's great to have you on and thank you for uh, joining me. I know you wrote a piece in Sportico. I want to talk about that, about where sports goes this coming year in 2021. Welcome, Donald. Thanks, Patrick. It's fun to be here with you. I've always admired uh, what you accomplished and with your brother, John, and so I'm enjoying this. It'll be a lot of fun. So tell me a little bit first about um, how you've been able to manage through this pandemic. I know you're still uh, working away in your uh, career and you're always cutting deals. I, I, didn't you just recently do the deal with Stan Smith, who's one of your longtime clients for his, I mean, his shoe is like more popular now than ever. Yeah, it's remarkable. Um, I put Stan with Adidas back in 1973 uh, with, of course, Dossler. Uh, Stan had won Wimbledon in 72, and uh, Dossler wanted to get into the American market, and he called and said, I'd really like to have an American star who could wear the shoe. And when we started back in 73, it was a, um, a brand-new leather shoe that had never been made before with a certain kind of sole underneath. But Stan then wore it competitively in in tennis for the next couple of years before he retired, you know, about eight or 10 years later when mm-hmm. he really stopped playing seriously. And then over the years, we've had, I don't know, seven or eight different contracts with Adidas that every four or five years we would have renewed since 873. And then suddenly in the 17, 18 and 19, the uh, shoe sales went berserk and, right. uh, they became the sort of the fastest selling shoe for Adidas, uh, that they'd ever made. So Stan is very happy, and we just signed a very, very long-term contract. It was one that uh, I've never quite done before. It's uh, in perpetuity. They came to us and said, we'd like to sign a contract for life. And I said, you mean in perpetuity? He said, yeah, we mean forever, not just Stan's life. And so it goes to his, his family, his grandchildren, and then his estate. So if, God forbid, if 75 years from now, Adidas is making a shoe with Stan's name on it or a shoe without his name, but with the exact same design of what he's been selling, uh, his family and state would to get a royalty for it. So he's ecstatically happy. And I think Adidas is very happy. And in fact, they're, they're coming out in about two or three weeks to announce that their number one shoe in next year, 2021 is going to be called the Stan. Mm. After Stan Smith. <laughs> and it's going to be something. So we're all, you know, very lucky, very blessed. But he's been with them ever since 73, which is, what is that, 27? That's about 47, 48 years with one company. And uh, you know Stan very well, Patrick. And yep. The kind of human being he is and the character he is, it's just worked out uh, fabulously well. 
Yeah, I think that's a pretty darn good deal to have that in perpetuity and uh, and well done to you. Now, the uh, one of the other big shoe deals you uh, helped make happen was the Air Jordans with Michael Jordan. So I want you to give it because I know you you got into basketball. You obviously started in tennis, and tennis has been uh, the, the the heart and soul of your life and your career. But tell me a little bit about how that happened with Michael Jordan and Nike, and how that all came about because that that shoes worked out pretty well, darn well too. It sure has. <laughs> no, uh, we uh, we represented Michael when he graduated from North Carolina. Pro serve. Uh, I got a call from Coach Dean Smith and said on a Saturday morning and said, "Would you be interested in uh, representing and managing Michael Jordan, who was a junior at the time?" And I said, "Sure." Now we had we had started w- working with Dean Smith, Coach Smith, about four years earlier, and by that I mean I had gone down there and said to him, "Look." Pro serve. We're very interested. We're getting into basketball. We're doing a lot in the ACC. I have 300 employees in, in sports and 16 offices globally. But I will promise you, Coach, that we will not recruit on your campus. We won't call anybody. We won't write anybody. We won't chase one of your players. If you will just let me come down at the end of the season and meet a player, whoever you select, in your office with you or with his parents, the, ch- the player's parents, and Dean Smith, of course, loved that because then he controlled the whole program and the players liked it because they wanted to work with Coach Smith. And so we had been very involved with him for four or five years. And suddenly when he called me on a Saturday morning, I, nobody really knew. They had just won the NCAA championships uh, intercollegiately and right. beaten Georgetown in the finals. But no one really knew uh, exactly, you know, the talent of Michael. And uh, he came up. A week or so later with his dad, James, and they stayed at my house for two nights and we signed Michael. And he, he actually said, you know, I don't really want to come out as a junior. I'd like to stay one more year, play and graduate. Mm-hmm. But Coach Smith just feels that we've just won it all and it's the best time to come out. So I'm really following his advice. And I said, well, Patrick, I mean, Michael, you can always go back right. and graduate, which, uh, which he had promised his mother, Dolores, he would do that. And he did. So we started representing him in 1984 and in college at North Carolina, he had worn a Converse shoe and Converse because of Coach Smith, all of them were in Converse for a couple mm-hmm. of years. So Converse and Adidas made, you know, very strong runs at Michael and, uh, and so did Nike and Nike, uh, Rob Schlosser, uh, Schlosser, who was their marketing guy, flew into Washington on a Saturday morning again, uh, because he was actually they were there Friday night for a big opening of a, of a Nike store in Georgetown. And he said, do we meet in your office? Cause we're really interested in Michael. And so uh, we, we sat down in our office on a Saturday morning, my office. And uh, there were four of us there talking as my assistant was there. Uh, my, and David Falk, who was my assistant at the time, worked mm-hmm. with me for 18 years at ProServe. And they had two people, Peter Moore and Rob. And we were going back and forth. We wanted a name shoe. And they wanted a Nike shoe and they wanted just to have it identified with name tags and stuff. But we wanted a name shoe on the name of the shoe. And we were arguing back and forth for maybe 45 minutes. And suddenly uh, Peter Moore said, well, what about Air Jordan? <laughs> and everybody just right. stopped. You know, and thought, God, that is because Michael was a leaper. His logo is a leaper. Right. And we thought that's remarkable. Yeah, we'd love to do it. And so, that's how the word Air Jordan arrived, and we signed a five-year contract with Adidas, and then that went uh, very, very well in the name shoe. And Adidas, then when we went to do the second 
Jordan thing and Jordan, Jordan endorsement. I came up with the idea. I'd learned this really from Jack Kramer. And I said, let's do a 5% deal for Jordan, mm-hmm. but also let's do a 3% separate bucket over here very quietly of any and all basketball shoes that you all make in the next several years. I think the contract was for five years. And uh, till night, we were negotiating like that idea because they really wanted to get into basketball. And Michael had been the forerunner of that, and they were starting to get heavily involved. And, of course, what happened was the, the 3% bucket of all basketball shoes and the five swamped the 5% name only mm-hmm. bucket because they were really getting heavily involved. So at the end of that period, which was about nine, 10 years later, you know, we were out there. This was the ninth year they'd been with them. Patrick, I mean, excuse me, Phil Knight came back to me, Patrick, and said, right. let's do another contract. And uh, I really wasn't that heavily involved because by that point in 1992, Michael had left. Uh, and the new contract, the final one, was done with, with a, where Phil came up with a great idea. He said, I don't want to keep paying all these royalties that Dell negotiated. I'd like to start a new company. Uh, let's call it Jump Inc. Mm-hmm. And Michael will own a, a 50% of the company. We'll run it for him. We'll do all the work. We'll market it. We'll develop the shoes and we'll, we'll start this company. And he's then an owner. And I would say, uh, Today, that that uh, shoot, that company, Jump Inc., is now selling two billion dollars or more in sales, and that's really what's enabling Michael to buy things like the Charlotte Hornets mm-hmm. and, and also uh, uh, to get into uh, car racing. You know, with Bubba Wallace. I mean, he's gone crazy here because uh, he's remarried. He's got the twin girls, and I think he's very very happy living in Florida. Well, speaking of girls, I have twin girls too, Donald. It's a great Donald Dell joining me here on Holding Court, and I um, would they 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 wanted to get the Air Jordan sneakers, okay, for Christmas, and you know I'm already spending all this money getting them all these clothes and stuff, and I'm like, wait a second, is that price correct? And my wife, somebody goes, yeah, they're like four or five hundred dollars. I'm like, I don't think they really need the Air Jordans that badly, but it I, I tell you, you you nailed these two shoe deals, Donald, back in the day. So I want to go, I want to go back in the day a little bit. Cause I, I, I obviously love the basketball talk and the, and the sneaker talk, but, um, I, I, I gotta know about how Donald Dell, your brother, Dick Dell, of course, was also a, a, a longtime great agent, also was a really good tennis player, but how did you guys get started in tennis? What was, what, what kickstarted you as a kid to pick up tennis? Well, you know, it was amazing. We lived in a, a small two-bedroom house uh, in Edgemore, uh, which is a suburb right in the middle of Bethesda, Maryland, called Edgemore. And literally 100 yards from our home uh, was a club called the Edgemore Club, which had a lot of tennis, uh, no golf, just seven tennis courts and swimming pool. And we could walk there in less than a minute. Mm-hmm. And my mother, uh, who loved to play tennis, was not that good, but she enjoyed it. She really got me started playing uh, when I was about six years old. And more than that, uh, we were so close to the club that we could walk and get into the backboard on the back mm. side of it. Mm-hmm. And I used to play on, I used to battle that backboard by hour, yeah, it's, hour it's, after it's, hour. You know, I've it done, always won backboard. I listen, I've, I've, I've done some, backboard. I've done a lot of these with, um, you know, some, some all, all-time tennis greats, Martina, 
Navratilova, Ivan Lendl, uh, Barami, and I did a great podcast with him, and, and so many of them, including yours truly and my brother John, were we, similar to uh, to you. We grew up down the street from the Douglaston Club and, and spent hours and hours. I used to play imaginary matches, Donald, Laver, Rosewall, on the wall. Laver always won, by the way, 6-4 in the fifth. That was the score of every match I ever played on the wall. Well, it really was access. And as I got better and better, I, I won the national boys at Kalamazoo when I was 15, mm -hmm. which not, nobody at the club had ever done. And so then all the members started playing me. I'd go over there in the summer when we were home from school. I'd go there. I might play four matches in a day. Anybody that was mm -hmm. at the club that would you know, play with me, I'd play with them. And uh, that's really got my interest. I think the fact that my mother, uh, my dad didn't play uh, sports at all, but he watched all of our matches. I mean, he was very involved with Dick and I. It's sort of a little like you and John. Mm -hmm. Remember, Patrick, I have to, I have to say this. I, you don't maybe remember, but I flew to Chicago because I wanted to re represent a McEnroe. And the purpose <laughs> of that visit right. was to represent you, not John. Yeah, well, you did, <laughs> I, I made a big mistake. I should have, I mean, you know, who knows? No, no, I might you were tied up. Yeah. You, had a, yeah. you had two more years to go in your contract. And I was trying to get you to consider coming with pro serve. But anyway, I've always admired uh, the work you've done over the years, particularly when you were running the player development for the USTA. I mean, that's a tough job because, yes. you know, you're competing with the world now. The ATP and the computer has exploded and changed the face of tennis. Mm -hmm. And people don't seem to understand that when they say, Where, what's wrong with American tennis? Right. The fact is we've, we've been diluted now into a world-class greatness of a lot of other players that don't come from America or Australia or England or France. They come from, you know, Soviet Russia. They come from Eastern Europe. It's a different game. Where were you when I was getting pummeled as the head of player development for the USCA, Dolly? See, I should have had you as my agent years ago. You could have protected me. So now you're the group president for a company called Sport 5. So you run the media, the events, and tennis for Sport 5. And uh, you wrote an article in Sportica, which is a great um, publication about all things sports, in which you talk about the way, th the way the sporting world in particular, a little bit of tennis, but it was really all about all sports. I know you're connected with the Wizards. You have season tickets for them in, in the D.C. area, and just about how the sports, uh, the, the landscape needs to change for people, for fans to come back if and when, you know, hopefully with the vaccine uh, is successful and we can get back to congregating again. What things do you think have to change for the, the, these sports to continue to be successful? Because, I mean, the sporting business, nobody knows this better than you from having spent your career in it has just exploded uh, in the last 20, 25 years. Well, I think you got to start with two basic things. You, you have to understand first is safety and second is having money. And both those things are in jeopardy right now. I mean, safety is, is the cry until we get the vaccine, which could be six, eight, ten months uh, from now, depending on how they distribute it and how they can get it out for herd immunity. So you got to have a safe building. First of all, you got to really distinguish between indoor sports Mm -hmm. like basketball or outdoor sports. Really, golf is the best example of outdoor sports. And outdoor tennis, most of the tournaments are outdoors except for the indoors in, in you know, February and March, January, February and March. Right. But when you're down uh, in Australia in January, you're playing outdoors, you're playing New Zealand, you're playing all the different Dubai, you're playing a lot of countries, but they're all outdoors. So uh, tennis has a bit of an edge if you can stay outdoors. But the indoor sports are going to have to really solve the problem of safety first and money second. And what I mean by money is, you know, we're, we're going to have a terrible 
uh, economic problem immediately when uh, President Biden takes over in two and a half, three weeks, because the economy is terrible and uh, Trump seems to be doing everything to hurt the economy and hurt the Americans as he takes the leave of office. But so he's going to inherit a mess, and, mm-hmm. and that's going to be a problem because a lot of these people are going to be out of jobs. And so you, when you really think about the sports world, you're going to have to have ownership and owners that figure out a way to uh, you know, sort of entice uh, ticket holders back. And there are lots of ways, I think, to do that. You could have a two-for-one discount, which Ted Leonis is the owner of the Wizards, a very smart, po- very popular owner in mm-hmm. Washington. Uh, yeah, as opposed to other owners. Really <laughs> I was going to say, uh, unlike some other owners of maybe a football team. Right, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, right. exactly. And so he, you know, he comes up with a lot of creative ways. First of all, he answers every email or, or text that you send him. I don't know how he does that, but he's been doing that for years. Hmm. So he's very popular with the fans. And I think, you know, it, when we had the problems in 08 and 09 of the economy, he did a lot of different things. He did an, uh, a two-for-one discount deal for some if you had long-term season ticket holders i've been there 43 years so i I get a lot of nice benefits by the longevity another thing he started about four years ago which was just i think to re-interest people in the wizards the capitals were doing great Mm -hmm. and the wizards were doing terrible and he put on every ticket uh, at a certain level ticket if you buy a season ticket you get a 20 dollar add-on for anything in the building, food, uh, clothing, whatever, whatever you want. So let's say you buy 175 hour, two tickets, which are, which are pretty expensive yep. depending on how the results of the teams are. They're a lot more in New York than that, but at 175, 200, you're then getting on two tickets, you're getting a $40, uh, gift to go do anything in the building and you get it for every home game and they're 41 home games. Well, 4,100, 41 times, Four hundred is about sixteen thousand four hundred dollars. So mm-hmm. that's a hell of an incentive to get long-term people to keep their tickets and season ticket holders. And he's doing—he's been doing that now for four or five years, which is phenomenal. Now I think that will change if the Wizards improve. If they don't, I don't know what he's going to do to keep people interested if they don't play better. Yeah, and, I, and certainly tennis. While well, you said the outdoor—the outdoor events have have that as a. As a positive, of course, the difficulty for for pro tennis, you know, Donald, is because people and players are coming from all over the world. So the quarantine issues and the travel and, you know, that's really a huge, huge uh, blocking point for pro tennis. Although it looks like the Australian Open is going to go ahead uh, a couple weeks later than it normally does in early February. So you you mentioned Jack Kramer. So I want to I want to ask you, excuse me, a little bit about you know, your, your involvement with the ATP and the ATP player union, which I know you basically sort of formed and you ran for in the early seventies for many years and the politics of, of tennis, which you've been on the inside, the outside of for so many years, Jack Kramer, Cliff Drysdale, my compadre at ESPN, of course you were involved with him too, but talk a little bit to me about how that all started and, and maybe more important, like how it's relevant to to where the politics of tennis and how you've seen it grow and what you think needs to, to continue to go forward to help the sport worldwide? Well, I think a couple of things. Jack uh, Kramer, to me, Jack was a great friend of mine. He's eight or ten years older than I was. And I always admired him tremendously as a player, but also as a businessman. He was kind of my hero in, in tennis. And uh, he and I got together and we decided we wanted to try to have a players union in 1972 
the game of tennis had gone open in 68, 69, where players could play. Pros and amateurs could play. That had been a no-no for years. Labor won the uh, Grand Slam in 62, turned pro with Kramer, couldn't play in any of the championships until 69. Uh, 68, he comes back in, he can play, and he wins the Grand Slam again in 69. So in 72, we felt it was really time to get the players uh, to have some real say in the game. The federations, like the Australian, were, were forbidding their players to play Davis Cup, the great players, unless they w- were signed up and registered with the federation in Australia. And the mm-hmm. top players, uh, Hoden, Rosewall, Labor, Rosewall, uh, all these great players, Emerson, Stolle, they said, we're, we're not going to sign up with the federation. That's, that's more of the same. And, it, and the federation was really kind of like the Olympic Committee, in a, in a sense, trying to control this explosion of open tennis. So we started a, a, a players-only union in 72. They played a small dues. Jack was their uh, chairman and executive director. He ran it for a dollar a year uh, because he was a dollar. I was their general counsel for eight years mm-hmm. uh, from 72 to 80, and I, I worked at a dollar a year as well, as did Pierre Darmon, who run Pat Moran's Europe for mm-hmm. us. He worked right. for a dollar a year. And Jack always had the feeling, he, he really strongly believed that he, he wanted the money of the game to go into the, the player's pot and not be tied up in a lot of administrative overhead. Mm-hmm. And that was the big thing with him. He said he wanted winners to get a ton, and he didn't want a lot of administrative costs. So in 73, which really was a start amazing, uh, was Chris Drysdale was the president, was very articulate, very a good, strong leader with Arthur Ashe and Stan and uh, John Newcomb, Tony Roach. And they suddenly decided uh, in 73, Wimbledon would, would not accept the entry of a, one of our members, Nikki Pillage, mm-hmm. because he had refused to play Davis Cup for Yugoslavia. And we took the position that, you know, that's really unfair. He's a pro now. He's not an amateur. He can't be pushed around. He should play the Davis Cup. We always wanted people to do that, but there's no obligation. Right. If somebody says, I mean, you know, somebody says, I don't want to play, you can't find him or suspend him. So he wanted to spend pillage, you know, for, for two years for not playing Davis Cup. So sadly, Wimbledon went along with it mm-hmm. and decided not to accept pillage's entry. So we said in, in London, if you won't accept pillage's entry, we're not going to play. And I remember we sat down at the last moment. They made the draw on a Friday and they included 67 players who had signed a letter saying they weren't going to play unless Pillage could play. And uh, what is really not known very much and talked about at all, uh, I, I flew over and worked with Jack at the Westbury Hotel. We met uh, the chairman of the ITF in those days, came over to see us. And uh, on a Friday, we said, look, I said, this is silly. I mean, we want to play, but we want to be uh, represented. We want to be treated fairly as pros. These are pros. They're not they're no longer sham amateurs. They're not amateurs. And so we wanted to uh, fight that point. Mm-hmm. And I made, I said, look, let's have a compromise. If I can get Pillage to agree to play Wimbledon, you accept his entry, and then he withdraws immediately for personal reasons and leaves the country. That way, the principle, he is accepted, mm-hmm. but he doesn't play. Is that acceptable? And... Alan Heyman, who was the chairman of the ITF, said, that's fair. I said, all right, let's shake on that. Right, Jack was there. We were in a hotel room. We shook hands on that, and I said, "Not. we have a deal if I can get Phyllis to do that. He said, yes. So I go into the other room. I call the Gloucester Hotel about 2 o'clock, mm-hmm. 
And lo and behold, Tillich answers the damn phone in his room. I almost fainted because <laughs> I never thought I'd get him right. at that time. And I said, Nikki, here's the deal. We'd really like you to withdraw from the tournament, uh, not play, but they'll accept your entry and then you go home. Mm-hmm. He said, wait a minute. Wait, he's very, he's very suspicious. He said, no, I'm not going to do that. I said, well, we have 67 people who are going to support you and not play if you can't play. Mm-hmm. He said, what are you talking? Wait a minute. He said, give me the name. So I read him off the list. I read him about 10 minutes. I said, how about Cliff Drysdale, Arthur Ashe, Stan Smith, who was the defending champion having wow. won it in 72. Right. He couldn't play in 73. Uh, John Newcomb, Tony Roach. And I went through the whole list. And he said, those guys are going to do that for me? I said, yeah, that's where we are. You're in the union. We're going to stick together. Mm-hmm. He said, okay, I'll, I'll do it. I'll definitely do it. Uh, I'll put the entry in. They'll accept it. I'll leave. I said, I don't want you in the country. I don't want the press all over you. Mm-hmm. You got to get out of here and get home right. right away. And he said, done. So I go back into Alan Hayman. I said, we have a deal. No, no boycott. Alan says the famous words. Well, I got to get it to, approved by my committee. We have a <laughs> oh, the old committee. Morning. The dreaded committee. Yeah, the right. Committee. right. And I said, wait a minute. That wasn't our deal, Alan. We shook hands on the deal. Right. He walked out the door. And I turned to Jack and said, well, there goes our deal. <laughs> and, of course, the next, right. next morning, uh, Alan calls about 1130. And Wimbledon made the draw with all these names in it. They didn't believe us either. Mm-hmm. And so Alan calls and says, my committee voted that down. We really think so. I said, okay, no problem. I called the chairman, I mean, the secretary of the all-in club. Right. Please withdraw the following names. 67 and names, And I read right. 67 names. Wow. And they go berserk. I yeah. mean, you know, because they got to redo the draw. They have to make a, the draw over. And all of this should have been avoided. And so, but I the, never knew but that the story. bottom that, line is. That's amazing. Okay. The bottom line, though, uh, and this has not been written. One guy wrote it years later, Mike Collins. Mm-hmm. I could have killed him. He wrote this uh, story about it a little bit in the Boston Globe. But the thing that really people don't understand that boycott made the ATP. Mm-hmm. Jack Kramer said to me after, he said, well, this wasn't my idea. But he said, now everybody's given up something. Everybody's got skin in the game, and they're going to make this association worthwhile and, and meaningful, which is exactly what happened. And it evolved in 1989 when uh, Hamilton Jordan came in and decided, mm-hmm. let's do a tour. Uh, whether it's right or wrong, he decided he copied the PGA completely. And he said, all right, let's do a tour. We'll have a partnership between tournaments and players right. and not a players-only union. So today, as we stand here, it says the ATP tour, but it, and the ATP players are 50% partners, right. but it's not a players-only union. It's a real partnership. And, of course, Patrick, you know better than anybody, sometimes that doesn't work very well. <laughs> right. when, you, when you sit down and analyze what do the players want? The players want more money and less play. The tournaments want more play and less money. <laughs> right. And it's all so, hard to get those to uh, work together, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, and, and uh, amazing. I never knew I heard that part of the story. That's fascinating stuff. And uh, you were right there, literally in the middle of it. So when you yeah. look, when, when you look at, at, at tennis now and during this pandemic, of course, there's been, you know, talk about the, uh, 
the, the powers that be working together, the ATP, the WTA, there's even been talk about them coming together as a group. Um, obviously, you've got the USTA and the majors, which hold you know, so much sway and have so much power because they've got the money, they've got the big sponsorship deal. So there, there, there was a lot of talk, even Federer sort of went out and said, you know, he, he, would, he would be for the men and women coming together. A, do you think that's a good idea? Um, which many people do. And then, of course, the, the, the second question I have for you is the one that is, is haunted tennis, as you just uh, suggested, with, with the reality of it actually happening, uh, even if people think it's a good idea, do you think it would ever happen? Well, to answer your question, A, I think two things. First, I think if you could combine the ATP with the WTA, uh, you would have a, a, a really double-barreled, relationship where you could you could have a lot more strength and a lot more uh, the co-ed events are, are the best events in the sport and the slams of course are, are way up there uh, above everything else on the ATP tour and so I think if you could form the two to get together uh, that would be a, a big step forward the biggest problem tennis has I think from a sporting point of view is an alphabet suit they've got so many interests and so many different groups trying to protect their own turf in different ways that they never had a unified. This is a global sport. This isn't an American sport. This isn't like the NFL or NCAA basketball. This is global. This is important in Australia or in China. China's huge now in tennis and has five events over there. So if they could get the two associations, the player associations together, I think that's a step forward. But you got to lessen the alphabet suit. And in one way, uh, the new chairman of the ATP, Andre Galbenzi, mm -hmm. who uh, I'm not close to. I don't know him personally, but I read stuff that he puts out and what's he, what he's trying to do. He's never had a chance. He came in in January. The pandemic hit the end of February. So he's ne never really had a chance to run the organization. But I think he's an intelligent uh, guy. He used to play. He went to play on the tour. He, you know, he's probably the highest he ever got was 43 or something. But he also went to business school and then he went to law school and he's been in media for years. And his goal is to take the media of both sports. That's one of the combinations if you had the men and women together. Right. He'd try to integrate and make the media more important. But he also wants to take his top 10 tournaments and make them bigger and bigger and better because he wants them to, to differentiate between the slams and the, uh, the thousand series events, the big ones like Indian Wells or uh, Rome or Paris, you know, that he wants to separate that from the slams. He wants to make them more important. So the differentiation isn't so enormous, but he's got a couple of problems. He's got one, you know, we got too many tournaments on the calendar. And so the weak ones, the two fifties, I don't know. He's got 38 of them on the calendar right now. Uh, that's a lot of, that's a lot mm -hmm. of tennis over the year when you're, you know, so I don't know how he's going to get rid of the 38, but to answer your second question B, will it ever happen? Yes, it will happen only if and only if there's real leadership and real strength at the top. The ATP succeeded because of leadership at the top. They had unselfish people on the board of mm -hmm. six or eight people who said, okay, I'll give up playing Wimbledon uh, for the good of the association. And if you could get that kind of mentality today, which is very hard to do because the money's become so enormous, there's probably 10 or 15% of the ATP that don't want co-ed uh, tournaments. And they're the lesser players. They're not in the top 50. They're in the next 100 because they, they feel that there's co-ed events will hard, be harder on them to get an entry into the tournaments. I don't think that's right. 
but that's their feeling. They, they, you know, the lesser players, the squeaky wheel still works in some of these associations. And that's the problem today with the world of tennis. Somehow there's got to be an agreement, a universal agreement of leadership to try to make important changes. I think the, uh, the uh, ATP is going to lead that in 2021. But you know, Patrick, that's not going to go very far if the four slams can't get right. together and want to help right. that. And the four slams, they all compete with each other. I mean, you know, if one puts up 50 million, the other one wants to put up 55 million. If, you know, uh, Australia last year gave every player a gift when they entered us $1,000 just to make him like the event. I mean, tournaments can't compete with that. And so it, it, it really is difficult. Uh, if you got the slams together in one form and one, you know, you could make the sport much bigger on television. And that's really our biggest problem. Mm-hmm. Everywhere in the world, tennis is one, two, or three outside of America. Mostly it's soccer. Soccer's king everywhere outside of America. And tennis is normally second or third. Some places it's basketball second, tennis is third. Mm-hmm. But if you go into many of these countries, China, Japan, Australia, tennis is right up there two or three in television. You switch over to America, and tennis is 10, 11, or 12 on the radar screen. And that's the big problem uh, with American tennis. You've got to make it more important to the viewer. And, even in, uh, and in, that's yeah. really hard to do. Yeah, and even in Europe. And you know that better than anybody because sure. you made, made a living working at, ten- at tennis television. Absolutely, and uh, hopefully we'll continue to do that for a few more years. So you you you've made your living, Donald, in uh, so many different ways as a as a lawyer. You went to law school at UVA. Uh, you started your own firm. You know, we talked about the sneaker deals, your leadership roles with the ATP. You're in the Tennis Hall of Fame, where you certainly deserve to be. If you could say to me as we as we wrap things up here. The, the one thing, it's hard because, you know, there's so many things that you can see you're still totally dialed into everything that's happening right now. If you could say there's one thing you're the most proud of about what you've done, what would it be? Well, I think it, I think it'd be two things. I think, uh, one, um, first of all, you have to have a passion and a love of what you do. But I think I worked with uh, Arthur Ashe for 25 years, mm-hmm. and I worked for Stan Smith for 47 years both on a handshake. Yep. We've never had anything but a handshake, not a contract. And so I'm very, very proud of that. I'm also proud of what we tried to do to get the game to go professional, put in prize money in 68 and 69. We forced the grand grass court circuits to put up $25,000 a week rather than paying under the table payments to the leading players. We made it prize money only, winner take all in 69. And we got from Washington, we started, that was the first prize money event, 25000 Then we went to Marion, Longwood, Newport, Southampton, the whole grass circuit. You've got to remember, it was a different game then. The U.S. Open was played at Forest Hills on grass, so all the major right. tournaments were grass. And I'm very proud of the fact that we were able to force the tournaments to put up prize money, and then, of course, the ATP Players Union in 72 followed that. So 69 and 72 were extremely formative years that made the sport grow and prosper. It's all forgotten today, I think, by many of the players, but they've been some great. Not great by me. I mean, not by me. I'm not, no, I didn't forget it. it. No. But I mean, seriously, you know, some of the great ones, I mean, Federer and Nadal, uh, they really care mm-hmm. about the importance of the sport and the health of the sport. And if we got four or five more like them, Murray's one, Djokovic could help, uh, then you have a chance to really make it a global sport 
well unified. I, I've always thought one last thing, and uh, you know, they always talk about let's have a commissioner of tennis. Mm-hmm. Tennis is global. I, I think you need a commissioner's office, and you'd have one in America, one in Europe, and one in Asia, and those three guys would be tremendously knowledgeable in tennis, respected, older, no financial commitments in the sport, don't have tournaments. Mm-hmm. And those three guys would work out of one office. They would work together globally. Then you could really change the sport. Now, I don't know if that will ever happen, but That's at the end idea. of the day, it's been a wonderful, wonderful sport for me. And uh, I still love what I'm doing because I like the people, I like the business, and I still have a passion <laughs> Well, that, I don't know why. That's obvious, Donald. And I want to, I don't want to mention because you were humble enough not to bring it up or maybe you just forgot because you've done so many damn amazing things in, in tennis is every year at the city is now the city open, the tournament in Washington, D.C., which has been there forever. Uh, so much of the money and you were the one that started the tournament goes to the Washington Tennis and Education Foundation. And I was been lucky enough to play there, to commentate there, to be there for many, many years. And I, and I always look up and see you know the biggest sign uh, at the whole tournament is the Washington Tennis and Education Foundation, which supports just uh, so many kids in the inner city in the D.C. area, and it's been an amazing, amazing organization. And I know how important that's been to you and to that tournament for so many years. So I want to commend you and thank you for doing that for so many years and making that a priority. Patrick, that was a really life's work of love. Uh, uh, they funded me when I was a junior player, they, the foundation, and I wanted to give something back. I ran the tournament, actually, for 50 years. I retired in 2018. <laughs> we sold the event, but I ran it for 50 years, so it was a labor of love, and I really enjoyed it. And the WTF has meant a lot to me, and they've done a great job in Washington for junior tennis, and they started way back. Uh, we started the event in 1969, and we used the tournament profits to fund the WTEF, the foundation. So it's been it's been a terrific, a lot of fun for me to participate in that over the years. You're right. Well, a lot of fun for me to have you on, and I appreciate you uh, spending a few minutes with me, Donald. This is, as I said, a great way to kick off my podcast in 2021. Let's hope that we can all see each other in person at some point this year, and uh, thank you for all you've done for the great sport of tennis, and uh, enjoy this year coming up, Donald. Well, Patrick, I appreciate it. The one last question, though, is it too late to sign you? Now you know what? Years. You know what? It might. It might. You know, I might have to think about this because you know I'm, I'm I'm going over. I said, you know, I really effed up my career here. If I had Donald, you know, who knows what I could have done? So I'm going to think well, about. You know, that. there were two. No, but I got to say this: there were two great back and row brothers. But I only wanted the one I really cared most about. There you go. It was Patrick. See that? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell that to John. I'm, I'm actually heading off to our academy shortly to hit some balls with John. So I'm going to mention that to him. Thank you. Mention that to him. I always want to represent <laughs> you, not him. All right, Donald. The great Donald Dell. Thank Thanks, you so much. Patrick. Happy I've New Year. It. You got it. Take care. Happy New Year to you and your family. Thank you. Bye-bye. Same to you. That's Donald Dell here on Holding Court. I'm telling you, whenever I end up going back on the road, which I hope is relatively soon, but probably won't be for this year's Australian Open, I can tell you, whenever I head back on the road to travel, my pillow is coming with me. It's totally changed the way I sleep. Totally. I mean, I'm just so much more comfortable. Relaxed. I don't know what it is. Getting a little older, I feel like I need more sleep. I had COVID back in March. I, I feel like I've been sleeping like nine, 10 hours a night. But I'll tell you, since I got my pillow and thanks to my friends there for supporting this podcast and sending me the stuff absolutely changed my life. You got to try it. My pillow. 
There's an absolute plethora of stuff you can order on the site. Okay, all different my pillow products. I got the mattress top. I got, as I said, some of the towels, the pillows are off the charts. If you got a pet, you'll love that too. So here's the number to call, 800-875-1023. That's 800-875-1023 and use the promo code COURT. Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe is powered by Mudhouse Media.